Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours, indeed, in the panhandle of my heart, it's the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rich. Uh, We need to finish this up pretty quickly. I need to head down to IHOP because it's National Senior Citizens Day and I need me a $5 um, Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity at, what? three in the afternoon before my nap <laughs> living the dream life uh and so is a company i think we're all familiar with vmware has had what i'm calling acquisition palooza insert firework effect from microsoft solitaire um lots and lots of interesting news here we're going to start out though with one that is almost an acquisition by all accounts and that's that vmware is talking with Pivotal. TechCrunch reported last week that VMware is in talks to acquire Pivotal, the company behind Cloud Foundry, or the commercialization of the open source Cloud Foundry platform. What you know, if we want to get technical, uh, Pivotal only recently went public a little over a year ago after being spun out from VMware and EMC back in 2012. It all gets weird because Dell EMC owns a majority of VMware and Pivotal, with VMware itself holding a significant interest in Pivotal. So if they get acquired, then Dell EMC kind of whatever it, it's a very weird relationship between them all the, at the end of the day though Cloud Foundry is almost a de facto standard in the Fortune 500 when it comes to software development as a platform does this make sense for VMware here Tom you know the last time I tried to sort out one of these big um, acquisition chains like this I think I ended up becoming my own grandfather through time travel <laughs> like it's it's just crazy but uh this is when you look at all the moves that VMware has been making over the last uh, I don't know year they've been cozying up to cloud providers um you know uh, AWS Azure well not Google cuz they don't care about Google and <laughs> Oracle Cloud insert joke here um the thing is be nice is VMware, be nice I'm being nice. I didn't say the L word. Um, <laughs> cloud is an existential threat to VMware. Let's just let's call it, let's call it as it is. If people adopt AWS and Azure with lock-in, they're not going to care about VMware anymore. So VMware has to have some kind of an offering, even if it's like a boutique cloud. And that's what Pivotal gives them. And the irony is, is that they were so intent on spinning all this stuff out, what, seven years ago? Because oh, there's no future in cloud. Nobody cares about cloud. And <laughs> now fool. they're running back. They're like, please, please take me back. I'll do the dishes. Uh, we'll go out on dates more often. Um, just just please, please, we need you. We need you. The, the cats are getting lonely. That kind of stuff. So just to uh, really like, in your mind, this is part of a grander vision just to kind of serve as the you know, like whatever cloud you're using, just this cross set of uh, uh, tools that can work uh, across there, whether you're talking about virtualization, container management, uh, network yeah. monitoring, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that they're trying to use the the, the work that Pivotal has already done to build on where cloud's going next, you know, with things like containers and microservices and and that kind of stuff. Because honestly, when you get VMware's bro- stuck in the, the log jam, you know, whenever it, Whatever it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, VMware's going to call it a virtual machine. And, and <laughs> if they don't get past that, uh, I had a, I heard a great story on NPR yesterday about the fact that you know Eastman Kodak was hung up for years on this idea of using film. Why? Because it was ex- it made them money. And if they had embraced what customers wanted earlier, which in this case would be containers instead of VMs, they could have led the digital photography transformation. 
VMware still hung up on this idea of VMs, and I think Pivotal is going to be the way that they get kicked off of it. That's really interesting. Now, the one thing that I, I haven't heard anything about is if there's any interest from anyone else to buy Pivotal, and does that get into like some weirdness because they're they're majority owned by uh, uh, Dell EMC? Does that get into weird territory of like, well, who else could buy them but essentially Dell or VMware? Who else would want them at this point? Um, well, and, and there, it, would there be value in a company not letting VMware buy them? No. Uh, and, and the problem is, is there's so much stuff that you'd have to unwind from all of that mess that you'd spend more money acquiring them than they were worth to you at this time. I mean, if I wanted to spend, I don't know, $800 million on Pivotal, I'd just go sink $800 million into Amazon Web Services instances and get exactly the same thing and be able to run them for like, what, 15 months or something? Spot price, <laughs> something <like> 21 <laughs> months. All right. Well, going on with the VMware acquisition of Palooza, I messed up my own portmanteau there. Uh, in an actual acquisition, news VMware confirmed the acquisition of Intrinsic, formerly known as GitStar, although I don't know anybody that's holding on to that name, and Veriflow. Veriflow offers their continuous network verification in and across clouds, on-prem for that matter, uh, which will be integrated into vRealize Network Insight. Intrinsic, meanwhile, offers an interesting tool for VMware's cloud portfolio, uh, focusing on serverless security, effectively allowing uh, serving as a policy management layer for deploying serverless instances across all major public clouds or, or using uh, serverless functions, I should say. This joins Bitnami as a major VMware acquisition in 2019. If the Pivotal deal goes through here, Tom, which of these ends up being the most important long-term, and does this signal anything about VMware's overall strategy? So... It's tough because it feels like Intrinsic is kind of basically waiting on the Pivotal acquisition. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I actually have a lot of experience with Veriflow. I mean, they presented at Networking Field Day 16 uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Brighton Godfried came out of that same group of people as Martin Casado and Nick McEwen and, and that whole crew from Stanford. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that has a longer term play. It, when it gets integrated into NSX, because network assurance is a huge deal. You know, let's build a mathematical model of the network and make sure that everything works the way that it's supposed to and nothing breaks and everybody's happy. But the problem is, is that when you get down to it, networking is anything more than a utility is kind of shot. Um, cloud is probably where your future is. And it pains me to say that because I am the networking <laughs> nerd. But, but, you know, you could, the, I think of it like the electric company, uh, you know, it, whether you're on PG&E or OG&E or EGG or whoever it is, um, you're, you can spend billions of dollars every year in investing in something that nobody sees or cares about. And, but that's what you want. You want this, the network to stay up. You want the utility system to stay up. Whereas the cloud stuff is hot and fresh. And even if people aren't paying as much attention to it, they like seeing all the cool stuff you're doing with it. Yeah, and this this kind of uh, idea of using formal verification, obviously, it's not just a, you know, as you kind of mentioned, Tom, it's not just a Veriflow thing. And, you know, interesting, we're seeing people kind of stock up on that IP through acquisitions uh, mm -hmm. now going forward, kind of signaling that it is, you know, a larger trend. Admittedly, yeah, one that the, the whole idea, yeah, to build that in so it's never noticed because you are doing that verification and that theoretically stuff doesn't go down. Very interesting. Um, I actually, like, I, I'm most interested to see what, if anything, they do with Bitnami. I know they're they're kind of 
saying I know that and I know that's the oldest acquisition here, but I know they've they've kind of publicly said they're they're gonna keep that a little bit more hands off um because that mm-hmm. is such kind of a developer darling, um, which makes a lot of sense. But I, I'm interested to see if that is over the long term expands them into new businesses that you you wouldn't a new kind of customers that maybe VMware wouldn't uh, be associated with generally. Yeah. All right, Tom. Let's talk about some chips. I'm all about the chips. I love a good chip store. And we had three really cool ones. We'll get the weirdest one out of the way first because it's just glorious. Startup Cerebras Systems, and I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, unveiled its wafer scale engine, the world's largest semiconductor chip. The chip has 1.2 trillion transistors with 400,000 cores and 18 gigabytes of SRAM memory. I'm assuming that's for caching and stuff like that. Um, it takes up roughly an entire 12-inch uh, squ- uh, uh, radius silicon wafer. So instead of making a wafer and you chop it up and you make your quad cores and your eight cores and your dual core stuff, they just make one chip out of it because why not? The chip was made in partnership with TSMC, although uh, Cerebras is evidently very cagey about what they actually let them touch and includes numerous redundant circuits to help improve yields, which is something I was very curious about because like, that's the big, that's the reason we have dual core chips when they can, they're making eight core chips is because you can use all the failed eight cores to make a whole bunch of other dual cores. Uh, the chip will be sold as part of an overall compute appliance. You're not going to be buying just this chip uh, in and of itself made by Cerebras for machine learning and AI workloads. That's really their overall pitch. Uh, with this. It includes water cooling because it generates 15 kilowatts of power <laughs> for a chip. Admittedly, I did the math with 400,000 cores. It's actually very low per core. And and I want to put core in quotes because again, this is like AI uh, machine learning kind of stuff. So it's, it's more akin to uh, what uh, NVIDIA does with their Volta uh, GPUs or their Volta accelerators for machine learning. Those aren't proper cores. Those are like I don't know, accelerator engine, tiny little bits, but it's still a ton of them on a single chip. Their first production systems are expected to ship to customers in September. So Tom, making a whole chip out of a wafer, is this a thing now? Is this, are we ever going to see this have a meaningful impact? And is AI the only instance where we're going to need like such a high density, just giant, big old chip? I don't know what these people are thinking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and there's there's two reasons for that. One, why would you build one big chip when you can just slave a whole bunch of GPUs together or, you know, something like that? I mean, the resources exist to do this at scale beyond a 12 inch silicon wafer. But more importantly, and this is kind of something that um, comes up quite frequently in the chip manufacturing uh, business. I actually had the fortune to hear a great talk about doing chip manufacturing from uh, Peter Jones and Dave Zacks at Cisco. Um, you know why we make chips on a 12-inch silicon disk? Uh, because for the same reason that you get one of those salty hint of lime Tostitos and you dip it in the, the salsa and you're about ready to eat it, and when you pull it up, there's a hairline fracture in the chip and it just falls down into your salsa. And now suddenly you don't have a chip or salsa and you're disappointed. <laughs> you have all kinds of defects on these silicon wafers. And so when you divide them up and you build out, let's, you know, let's just make the numbers easy. Let's say there are 10 chips on one of those huge wafers, which is a horrible yield when you think about it. Let's just say that one of them has a defect in it. Will you toss the chip that you built on top of the silicon wafer defect and you have nine chips that you can sell. But if you built one chip out of one silicon wafer disk, and it has a defect that cripples like, I don't know, a hundred or a thousand of these cores, 
are you going to sell somebody a chip that has a thousand of their cores disabled? I mean, Intel tried that years ago with the 486SX processors. They just basically grabbed the ones off the line that had busted coprocessors and turned them into a, a market, but Yay. not today. <laughs> 400,000 chips is what I'm buying, not 390,000 chips and a big section of a wafer with a big X through it that says do not use. Well, and then the other thing is also, you know, with the process of bidding, it's not just like failed, uh, you know, uh, chips that like failed part of the manufacturing process. There's also like a huge variance in the frequencies that those will mm-hmm. allow, even on a fully functional chip, which is why you have some chips that are clocked at four gigahertz and some that are you know clocked at two gigahertz because there's that there is that huge variance in between these individual yields. So again, they're they're making this as a very like clearly making this a very bespoke. This is going in this very specific appliance. It's for this very specific use case. So maybe having that kind of specificity, they don't need to make it as general purpose, and that has some benefits to the manufacturing process. But again, it's there's it's still like this weird metallurgy of silicon that we have to deal with that has some unavoidable flaws. The other thing that I'm, I am fascinated by, like I, I want to learn more about this because I, I just don't know how it could possibly work is how do you feed all of those cores from system memory? Like that's a, that was like a huge problem with AMD's Epic platform. And originally because it, it had this asymmetric memory processor, because we're just basically grafting a bunch of quad core GPUs onto a single die and, but treating it like it was a multi-socket, server essentially within that one die and there was there was some performance penalties because they just couldn't feed it memory in the most efficient way because they wanted to have so many cores now i admit like maybe latency when you're dealing with training an ai set like isn't the most important thing at the end of the day it doesn't need to be a symmetrical workload necessarily it just needs to get done and maybe this is very optimized for that even still, I, I wanted like how many channels of memory do you need to feed four hundred thousand uh, of these? I, again, it if if they hadn't invested theoretically, I'm assuming tens of millions of dollars to develop this, if not more, um, seems like it's just like a hey, we did this, this is cool, right? Yeah, yeah, th- that's what this feels like. Is like hey, we built this really awesome chip. <laughs> we really hope that people buy like eight of them. Please, please. Uh, well, and uh, what I'm assuming the the cost of this uh, will have to be astronomical. Now, they weren't ready to cite any performance figures because I'm assuming this barely works at all. Like they've, they've gotten it to the point where it's like technically it works so they can announce it and they're going to be trying to like fully commercialize it for a long time. Maybe the performance is in a play, you know, performance per dollar, performance per water, whatever. They can make some kind of play where for people that have these very large scale AI workload needs, it makes sense for those three customers, but yeah. I, I'm extremely skeptical. What I am not extremely skeptical, though, is in other AI chip news uh, at the Hot Chips conference, which you guys, we need a better conference name. Uh, Intel unveiled two Nirvana neural network processors designed to accelerate training and inferencing of AI models. Yes, Tom, you're feeling it. You're in your place of serenity. Developed in partnership with Baidu, the Nirvana neural network processor for training is designed to handle data from a wide variety of deep learning models like Baidu's Paddle Paddle, Facebook's PyTorch, and Google's TensorFlow with 24 tensor processors per chip capable of 119 Terra operations per second. That's not terror. That's Terra as in the prefix uh, for like storage for metric stuff. 
The Nirvana Neural Network Processor for Inference is designed for getting insights from those trained data sets. It's essentially designed for inferencing, if you know what that is in AI. Uh, it offers scalable power, which I think is very interesting, from 10 to 50 uh, watts per chip and up to 4.8 tera operations per second per watt. So I think that's very interesting in that you can scale the power that you need with the performance that you need. It's very interesting. In terms of what that can do, you know, I know those operations per second, like what does that mean for AI? So at uh, this inferencing chip can do uh, can process 360 images per second per watt uh, in an image recognition model to give you some basis for that. And Reuters reports that Facebook is already using the new processor. So Intel kind of ex- now and and the back end of all of this is at the core. This is all based on 10 nanometer ice like uh, Intel x86 stuff. It's just highly highly specialized uh, into this uh, AI machine learning workspace. So. Tom, is this where we're going to see increasingly Intel making its plays here with with these kind of, you know, this is their second generation Nirvana chips, but this seems like their first real serious stab at this market. Yeah, this this is kind of, you know, the counterpoint to what we were just talking about you know, build a big die with a whole bunch of cores on it. Intel's like, no, we're, we're going to do what we do best, which is make a whole bunch of chips that have really good performance on small nanometer process. And, you know, we'll, we'll back it with, you know, the, the AI ML stuff that everybody really wants. I mean, when you look at the names that are on there, TensorFlow and the stuff that Baidu is doing, that's really what this is designed for. And, and Intel realizes where that market's going. I mean, there's only so many desktops that you can sell. There's only so many laptops that you can sell. But if you can sell into these AI workloads, I mean, right now, the use of AI and ML is just skyrocketing. And and once it becomes self-aware, Intel will be the only surviving humans left because they'll be the only people with the smarts to feed the need (laughs) for this thing to replicate. Well, and it's interesting, though, that, you know, uh, some other companies have made uh, a lot of noise about developing their own inferencing or training chips and that kind of stuff. Tesla and Google with their their tensor, pro- their TPUs, their tensor processing units. It's interesting that they very intentionally have made this uh, applicable to a wide variety of models. And I think mm-hmm. it's less of a play to maybe go after the hyperscalers, because, like I said, Google's already kind of invested into their own silicon, I imagine. I'm not 100% if Amazon has made that play yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do. But going after companies like Facebook, going after the these still large companies that maybe aren't operating quite at that uh, public cloud level um, and and having something that they can use. I mean, obviously, Baidu is a huge potential customer as well. Um, and trying to be, again, maybe being the general the general purpose, hyper-specified AI training. Uh, you know, not, not being general purpose in terms of the silicon design, general purpose into the workloads that you can feed into it. Yeah, and that's Intel's bread and butter is, you know, when you look all the way back to the 8086, they weren't trying to make a hyper-specific chip for a specific processing utilization. They made a general purpose processor. So that's where their expertise is. And I think it's going to pay off for them here. Yeah, and probably where, you know, philosophically is uh, is close to what they're comfortable operating with. Um, the only thing better than AI chip news, Tom, is open source chip news. And IBM is moving its Open Power Foundation under the auspices of the Linux Foundation. Uh, so Open Power was already kind of open source-ish, uh, but now this is they're really open sourcing a lot of different components as part of this move. This means that the power instruction set architecture, you know, 
to what power would be the equivalent of x86, that instruction set, uh, will be open sourced, removing the expense of licensing that the Open Power Foundation previously required to implement the technology. Along with the ISA, IBM will be releasing reference guides for Im- uh, embedding the instruction set on non-open power chips uh, with royalty-free patent rights as well. So uh, not just you know giving you the right to you it, but giving you the IP uh, around that, which is super important. The underlying technical architecture of open power chips, however, will still remain under open power foundation license, but being able to put it on non-power chips opens up a whole door. Is this a sign that open power is actually dead, Tom, or do you see this having uh, some benefit of open sourcing this? I think the benefit is, is that people are actually going to look at it now. Um, this is something that came up a lot with things like open switch and some other things that were kind of spearheaded by a company um Mm -hmm. but you know oh well we'll we'll make it open source so you guys can play around with it well the problem is is that when it's open source but heavily sponsored by a specific company the people who are using it in the market look up and go well i'm not giving those people my my hard-earned efforts and things like that because they're just going to turn right around and, and consume it and use it in their product lines so by giving it to the linux foundation by moving it out from under their auspices there's at least the hint that they are looking out for the protocols and the the architecture itself. Now, nothing's stopping IBM from going back and taking some of the best contributions and rolling it into the commercial side of things or or trying to improve on the stuff that they keep kind of close to the best because there's one thing that IBM still cares about its chip design, which is why this thing whole this whole thing kind of stayed under uh open power foundation uh for the design aspects. But, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of hot and cold on this because I love the fact that they're contributing to open source. I love the fact that they're giving the project to the community. But I also kind of feel like that this is like, all right, um, you're moving off to college and, and <laughs> your life's going to be different. We we still love you, but we're changing the locks and we're turning your room into a sewing room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought about that of this kind of being a fishing expedition by IBM to be like, hey, yeah, please put this on some non-power chips. Oh, you found some cool things that you can do with that. Let's that's open source now all of a sudden we can make some money off of that that's very interesting what i really want is for someone to make the most bizarre power pc uh based uh hackintosh based on some weird custom bespoke open power chips that'll never happen we're like what 15 years removed from that ever being possible but that's where my heart went uh as soon as i saw this news i mean more open source hardware i you know i wonder If, uh, you know, I I brought up the comparison of x86 just for comparison, but I wonder if, you know, if if Intel is increasingly getting into the specialized market, uh, x86 becomes less relevant over time. If we'll ever get to that point with Intel, who knows, but that would be probably not. Tom's shaking his head, but that would be awesome. Uh, More open hardware is better uh, hardware uh, for me. Um, So at least I am encouraged about that. Also weird to say open source and IBM uh, still, even though I know they're a huge open source provider. Um, That just about brings us to the end of the show. Chips and acquisitions. What could be better, Tom? Uh, Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? I am all over the place. So I am on Twitter at Networking Nerd. My blog is networkingnerd.net. I've got a lot of great content that's been coming out on gestaltit.com as of late. Um, Some of the events that I've been to, Mobility Field Day, Security Field Day, Black Hat, um, a lot of things. So definitely go check all that out consume all that writing, learn all the things, then maybe you'll have to go buy an AI ML chipset from one of these vendors to be able to process it, turn it into useful things. 
Exactly. I can verify all of that information is true, Tom. So thank you for sharing it. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology and my writing at gestaltit.com as well. We'll be back next Wednesday from at 1230 p.m. Eastern time running down the IT news of the week. Uh, remember, uh, if you ever uh, catch part of this, you want to uh, get uh, maybe just some audio goodness. You know, you don't want to watch the whole video show. We also have a podcast feed for the Gestalt IT Rundown. I just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your podcatcher of choice. You can find it there. For Tom Hollingsworth, for myself, Rich Straffolino, for all of us here in the Gestalt IT family, thanks for watching. And remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.